Isaiah 63, and we will read verses 1 through 6. Please attend carefully to God's Word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It is an oppressed and anxious people who ask the mystery figure in this passage, who is this and why is your apparel red? These questions that lie in the scripture here, this is one of Isaiah's remarkable songs which deal with the coming of the Lord's anointed king. As we note the allusion to the blood of his enemies, we might think him a terrifying and foreboding figure until we grasp the tone of his answers. He is the Redeemer who delivers his troubled people into a time of everlasting peace and prosperity. When day-to-day concerns keep us focused on the little things, it's hard to get interested in good versus evil debates. But some things in life draw our attention to the truth that behind all things is a righteous God who made this world good and that the powers of darkness are in rebellion against him, powers that include demons and ungodly people, as well as the sinful nature of our own hearts. We say things like, so-and-so lost the fight against cancer. Or if someone committed suicide, so-and-so lost the fight against depression. In saying such things, we are speaking truly that sickness, death, and murder are evils in our world, the result of sin. We're sheltered from many evil things that people do, but sometimes we see the atrocities of war, cruelties, and unfaithfulness are moral wrongs that demand to be righted. 
It is good that our righteous God fights against evil, for in doing so he sets his people free. And that's an essential part of our salvation, to be set free from the power of sin in our own lives and ultimately to be free from all troubling evil and all enemies. We need to put ourselves in the place of the believers of Isaiah's day who frankly were troubled by much evil in the church and evil out of it. And they asked, could God ever send help for us? And as we ask it, let us be comforted with these words from God that the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save. This prophecy begins with an unidentified mystery person. His clothes attract attention and he explains what the clothes tell us about him. And he says that he is coming to judge the world. So first of all, who is this mystery deliverer? Verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. This question is asked by the watchmen stationed on the city walls. Watchmen were the city's guards of ancient cities. And it makes sense that Jerusalem's watchmen would be looking toward the Jordan Valley, towards Edom, because enemy nations lay in that direction. At a time when Jerusalem was unprotected because of their covenant unfaithfulness to God, in the last chapter, God appointed spiritual watchmen to represent those who held fast to his covenant. And he said in that last chapter, chapter 62, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. These watchmen have a spiritual vocation to lead those who keep God's covenant. When they see a danger, or whatever they see from God, they are to call out, they are to notify. It's natural, too, that God's people will look to the watchman in time of danger or in time of anxiety. Thinking spiritually now, our, our sins make us anxious. Have you ever asked, have I sinned away my chance at God's grace? Have you ever asked, am I doomed to hell? Our anxieties also concern the unsaved in our families. Perhaps children who had a Christian upbringing but who are not walking with the Lord. Or the nation's moral decline and its inept leaders and rising crime and now generations of people who know not God. An education system that shoves God out of the picture. There are attacks against the church. Enemies who imprison pastors in China, for example. Well, the watchman's eyes are not primarily focused on those things at all. The most critical thing to be alert to is the city's relationship to her God. Here is what God shows the watchman. Someone is coming from Edom, from the capital city of Basra, from the location of the city's enemies. This person is coming all alone, too far distant to be recognized. His garments are crimsoned or bright red. He's not a defeated person who has been overwhelmed in battle, but he's a victor, for he is splendid in his apparel. Another word for clothing, you know that. This is majestic clothing as kings would wear, his sash around him, his sword strapped on his side, marching in the greatness of his strength. 
And as the figure draws near, the watchmen ask themselves, Who is this? And before they can challenge him, he calls out to them, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And you notice that right away the mystery figure expects to be recognized. Jerusalem is his city after all. And what makes him recognizable to the people? He is speaking in righteousness. Righteousness means morally straight, upright. It means conduct that is good. Righteousness is a quality or attribute of God, for God is righteous. His righteousness comes from his holy nature. And it is expressed for his people in his laws and his ways and his will. And when we encounter the law of the Ten Commandments, we recognize the righteousness of God in them. They are good for us, while rebelling against them hurts us. When we see the record of God's deeds in the Scripture, we see his righteous nature on display in his repugnance of sin. We see righteousness in his faithful commitments called covenants. All his works have been done in righteousness. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, Psalm 89. When he judges, he does that righteously also, or justly. And when we encounter Christ in the Gospels, his righteousness is so noticeable, so stunning, that even Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So this figure comes to his own city and to his own people, and he is speaking. Have you ever thought about this, that the scriptures are God speaking to us in righteousness? In the scripture, God is warning us of his hatred of sin, of its damaging consequences to us, and of the judgment coming on the world because of it. He is telling us of salvation and of his own faithfulness. The preaching of the word of God is God speaking in righteousness. He's telling a story, isn't he, about right and wrong and about how all we sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. No sinner being righteous, no, not one. He's setting forth his standard by which all will be judged and he's telling how righteousness can and does come from God to sinners to save them. Do you recognize the voice of God speaking in the scripture? God speaks as he does because in reality we are all in danger. A day is coming when God will judge all sin and will purge all causes of lawlessness out of the earth and those who are still in their sins will be condemned and cast into the lake of fire. We are in danger because God's righteousness requires our death, for death is the punishment for sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Could God ever send help for us? In all the neediness that has been occasioned by our sin, we need a Savior. The things that cause us anxiety in this life, the things that trouble us are the results of sin, aren't they? The things that cause us tears and misery crying, death, and pain are here because of sin. Who can save us from these miseries? The same one who can save us from the punishment due us for our sin. 
There is no help from any other quarter. If we are to have help, we must turn to God. We must look outward as the watchman did. If what we hear from within is turmoil, distrust, and brokenness, what we hear from the person God sent is, it is I. You know me, and I know you. It is I. Do not be afraid. I am mighty to save. And as we hear him speak, we hear how God sets forth a unique display of his righteousness in Christ Jesus, the Savior of sinners. But now the righteousness of God, words well known to you, the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 3. He was manifested to show God's righteousness, put forward as a propitiation by his blood that those who believe in him would be justified by faith. In a moment I'll explain what propitiation means, but all this is part of the story of righteousness so that righteousness could have its proper conclusion that God might be just or righteous in condemning sin and at the same time be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Isaiah saw him coming from afar hundreds of years in advance. And in what manner does he come? Mighty to save, to deliver and rescue his people from their sins and their enemies and finally from their troubles. Well, now the watchman asks this figure to explain his garments. And we find the question in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. He's close enough now that his garments can be seen. They're red from the hem of the garment to above the knees. He comes from Edom, which means red, and from the capital city, Basra, which means winepress. So he replies, yes, you've seen me right, and my apparel is red, for I have been in the winepress. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. What is a wine press, children? You may wonder this. I think it would be an interesting activity because back in those days, in order to make wine, a vineyard had to have a double-decker press. In the upper trough, which was like a stone pool lined with stones, uh, the workers threw the grapes, and then one or more people with bare feet would walk and stomp and crush the grapes. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? You can picture girls wearing skirts, walking on those grapes with bare feet. The men wore garments like skirts in those days. Uh, they didn't have two-legged trousers. And so as they trod the grapes, the grape juice flowed down, downhill through a trough into yet another vat or storage tank. And from there, the juice was collected into wineskins to make wine. Now, what do you think would happen to your clothes if you were treading out the grapes? Well, red grape juice would get all over your clothes. And when you got off from work that day, everyone would know that you had been in the wine press. The mystery of his clothes is suggested by the fact that he comes from Edom because Edom was the perpetual enemy of God's people. The Edomites lived east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan Valley. And as often as they could, they made life miserable for Israel. Their hostility and hatred for God and for his people just never abated. Far back, Esau, the father of the Edomites, hated his brother, Israel. 
and wanted to kill him. As far back as the exodus from Canaan, the Edomites refused Israel passage and brought out an army to stop them. Then David had to go to war against Edom. Sometime after Isaiah received this prophecy, the Edomites took part in the devastation of Jerusalem. As Obadiah tells it, they hunted down the Israelites fleeing from war and turned them over to the Babylonians who arrested them. This figure's work in the wine press is a word picture for the destruction of the perpetual enemies of the church. I have trodden, verse 3, the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I want to take a moment or two to examine this picture. Edom is the picture, Edom I say, is the picture of sinners without a covenant of grace. It's the picture of those who resist God's ways, who resist God's grace and God's purpose in the world. Edom is like a sinner who knows nothing of the grace of God. Some people will tell you that God is not angry at sin or sinners. This may be one of many scriptures that says different. You notice how many times his clothing is referred to. The clothes tell the character of the man. These crimson clothes speak of righteous anger. See how he accepts the state of his clothing. He says there in verse 3, Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Like the red juice of grapes would stain the hem of the treader's robe, he acknowledges the blood of his enemies. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments. And again in verse 6, I poured out their lifeblood on the ground. And we also notice the anger words. They are piled up in this passage one upon another. Anger, wrath, vengeance, wrath, anger, and wrath. There's a personal fury to this. It is a personal issue with him, like a man whose family is threatened. Such anger from God is the reality for all who die in their sins without Christ. It is my duty as a watchman to tell you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ and come to him in faith as your Savior. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out the reapers, who are angels, who will gather out of his kingdom all causes of offense. His bloodied garments show us the righteous anger of God on account of sin, and they picture his just wrath against sinners. I'm going to tell you what you can't see in English. The Hebrew wording means I polluted my garments, where he says, I stained all my apparel. It means that in executing this wrath, he exposed himself to defilement. Yet we have to ask the question, is he defiled? And the answer is for us here in the passage, no, he comes home saying, I am as I have always been. I am righteous. I come speaking in righteousness. Therefore, we conclude that 
the death of his enemies has been done in righteousness. It was the right thing to do. The guilty deserve to die. And that's why he can wear the bloody garments of judgment and not be ashamed. Now, importantly, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. As we regard this figure, we realize he has the marks of the servant of God. In earlier parts of Isaiah, God's servant submitted himself to the teaching of God, saying, and this is an example of righteousness, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. He also submitted himself to punishment. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, chapter 50. It was the servant who, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter, who was put to grief because it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53. He's alone, friends, because there is no one righteous enough to judge except him. Only God's servant has done what is righteous by keeping God's law blamelessly. He did no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When we talk of his righteous obedience, we talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus and the righteous way his soul made an offering for sin. The meaning of the cross on which the Lord died about 2,000 years ago is that God was pouring out his wrath on sin. He was giving his own son to die as an offering for the guilt of his people. The Lord Jesus died for sin and for sinners in their place and in their stead. He was pierced not for his transgressions, but for theirs. Therefore, he can tread the winepress, destroying the guilty because he has no guilt. He has the righteousness of God to judge the whole world because he is God. In fact, the scriptures tell us all judgment has been committed to his hand. If anyone wants to be saved, he must deal with the Lord Jesus Christ alone. For Christ is judge. And these verses tell of his coming judgment. Do you see, beloved brothers and sisters, how the Lord Jesus is the wine press for his people. The wine press of God's wrath is the only righteous way of dealing with sin. Sin deserves death. But those who believe on the name of Christ are not thrown into this wine press of the wrath of God. This is the meaning of propitiation. The wrath of God has been turned aside from those who deserve it and put onto him. The guilty go free because he went into the wine press and because he suffered the trampling wrath of God for all who believe. The cross shows us the wine press. The cross makes us think of the broken body and blood of our Lord. God's love for sinners was displayed there when he was crushed for our iniquities. Therefore, believers will never fall into the winepress of God's wrath. The never-changing truth for God's oppressed and anxious people is that their lives, now hidden in Christ, are precious in God's sight, and he will save us from the wrath to come. Friends, people may deceitfully or ignorantly 
tell you that there are many ways to be saved. They will set up many false hopes for salvation. But God's testimony tells us there is only one figure in the wine press of God's wrath. No one else can save because no one else possesses the qualifications. See verse 3, from the peoples no one was with me. No one. I did it alone. There is no one who can help him save the guilty. And there is no help for the guilty save him. Only one mediator exists between God and man. And so as you hear the word of God, God is commanding you to set your faith and hope upon the Lord Jesus. As you see the gospel made visible later in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, which symbolize his body and his blood, God is calling you to faith. My son, God says, is imminently qualified to save. He has divine might to save. Therefore, set your hope on him. And now we come to the last part, to the coming day of judgment, which still lies in the future. The coming day of judgment. Verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. The powers of evil have long sought to control the king's good domain. He must in justice take this world back for himself, because that's right, and to fulfill his promises to you, his people, of a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. In all the scriptures, God has foretold this coming day. The Lord, he surely comes, the judge of earth to be. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And so Isaiah says, for the day of vengeance and my year of redemption, because he foresees Christ coming at the right time. The time is coming when he comes to judge, to banish evil, and to install his kingdom of glory. And though we may be sure that Heaven's king thinks much about the salvation of the elect in this present age. We may be sure that the day of vengeance is upon his heart. Judgment is the remedy for the remaining evil in the world. That's why it must come. And his bloodied clothes foretell the day that every unbeliever, which is an evil person, meets his doom at his second coming. The church will have its final salvation. I draw your attention to some wording in this verse, verse 4. The year of redemption is the year of my redeemed. And if you have the ESV, you can look at the footnote where it says, the year of my redeemed, I think it's a slightly better translation. Since he saved them, there is a redeemed people on the earth. And their strong and triumphant Savior takes note of them who are his kinfolk, and he seizes their plight as his own. He says, verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Think how wonderful that the Lord took note of us in our greatest need, the need we had for grace. He was appalled by the fate of mankind in its sin. And so he took up the work of grace as his own. Salvation is all a work of the mediator. 
as God becoming man cannot be accomplished by any but the Lord Jesus Christ, so also, as only going to the cross can only be done by him, he did it alone. Therefore, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Acts 4. And so final judgment also belongs to him. And when he comes again, it will be like this. Verse 6. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. We may ask, why blood? And the answer is, because the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17. And when we think of blood, we see again what a gracious provision God has made for us to save us from wrath. Christ's blood is the offering of his own infinitely valuable life. Valuable enough to give as payment for our sins. And to redeem us to God. Therefore, in love for his people, he shed his blood on the cross. He offered up his life for sinners to meet the righteous requirement that said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. As we come to the Lord's table in a moment, you must see it for what it is. If you remain in rebellion against him and do not hate your sin, neither turn from it, if you think, that you do not need a Savior, then these elements foretell the coming wrath of God on you and the pouring out of your lifeblood on the earth. But if you believe, and for you who have believed and repented, these elements declare to you the remission of your sins through faith in the one who gave his body and blood for you on the cross. If the Lord went into the wine press and shed his own blood to reconcile us to God, what reason could any of us have to withhold reconciliation from a brother or sister? I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to repent of all your sins. Perhaps there is some relationship that you have not healed by refusing to be reconciled, showing that you do not yet love the brothers as you ought. Think what Paul said of two women having a conflict in Philippians 4. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Both women's names were in the book of life, but they were in conflict. If there's any brother or sister against whom you hold a grievance, someone whom you would not be willing to invite to eat at your table, then you're not prepared for this Lord's table. You must leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother or sister. Even anger, unrighteous anger, a lack of forgiveness, any lack of a gracious attitude is a death-deserving sin against God. Because of the full sufficiency of Christ's pardon, you can always turn back to God's mercy. A fountain has been opened for sin. So forsake your sin and endeavor to live a life of righteousness. You must do it and so must I. It's the righteous thing for a kingdom people to do.